You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, radiotherapists, and welcome to this Sunday's edition of Radiotherapy. As usual, we have an action-packed show planned. First up, we have a special guest in the studio. Gavin Krasiska is an ex-AFL footballer who won a premiership with the Mighty Magpies, Australia's premier sporting club, also known as Collingwood. Now, okay, okay, don't turn off. We all know not everyone loves Collingwood, not everyone loves football. In fact, some of you hate the Magpies, but no matter what your feelings are about the Pies and football, you'll want to hear what Gavin has to say. His story is one of a secret drug addiction and eventual treatment and then moving on to being a drug counsellor, so stay tuned. Also in the studio is Capri, who sadly has never, ever played football in her whole life and never won even one premiership with Collingwood. But she is a GP of extraordinary repute. Capri is going to tell us how and when to question your doctor for best results. And as if that isn't enough, Australia's best top medical student... But alas, also a non-footballer. In fact, I don't even think she knows how to hand pass. Dr. Trainer Wheels is with us. Trainer is going to give us an update on her training, plus tell us about safe injecting room. On the buttons today, of course, is the ever-trusty non-footballer again, I'm sorry, Kent, um, doing his bidding. might dip in at some stage. And finally, of course, you have me, Dr. Doolittle, who, like Gavin, is a football premiership winner. Yes, yes, it's a little-known fact that I have also (laughs) held the Premiership Trophy high in the air. Now, I'll I'll own up, it was with the under-13 East Melbourne Football Club. (laughs) It wasn't Collingwood, but look, really, six of one, half dozen of the other. As Gavin, as far as I'm concerned, we're both winners, we're both Premiership champions. I've already heard that story and you're a big nighter, I can tell you. Oh, no, look, I'm I'm, I'm a famous footballer. How are you, Gavin? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for getting up at uh, bright and early and making the trip out to... On a Sunday, wow. I know, it's a big deal. (laughs) Capri. G'day. How are you? Well, very excited to be back. Yes. And trainer wheels too. Hi. Hey, uh, because this is our first show for the year. Because as regular listeners will know, we sit on a sort of a four-week rotation and we take a, a bit of an extended break over summer because we're as lazy as lazy can be. Um, so it is nice to be back and uh, talking to you all. It's great to be back. You know what? Seeing um, we're sort of ready to go, <laughs> I just realised we're meant to be doing well, Let's hit Dr. Doctor, Kent. I like Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna kill my ear. I got a bad case loving you. A pretty Whenever you want, if you... Yeah. Anyway, we're back on the air. We're doing online uh, production, which is our thing. It's a that great is our start. thing. <laughs> you know, you you know, you might you might think that after having had two months off, that we'd come back super fresh prepared, and, mm, fresh. Organized. We'd have everything organised. But no, this is three people up. It's Sunday morning. It's radiotherapy. But what we do have is lots of information. Trainer Wills, what have you been reading? Tell uh, us. Well, you would have seen in the news this week, dear listeners, that the Victorian Health Minister has rejected a trial of safe injecting rooms in Richmond. Um, I think it's a pretty interesting call because this is despite quite a lot of evidence that they do reduce harm. Uh, they reduce deaths from overdose, a bunch of pretty good stuff. The coroner um, recommended the trial and the health minister said no. Nah. And I'm actually not clear on what their reasoning was to be honest. I I couldn't quite work that out. They said, oh, we're interested in a harm minimisation approach, but 
a, self, a safe injecting room is exactly that. So Surely it's the popular vote. So no just to, did you explain what a safe injecting room was? So a safe injecting room, as far as I understand it, is a place where somebody using intravenous drugs can get safe needles, be supervised. Um, it risks, it, sorry, it uh, minimises the risk of infection of all different sorts. The um, risk of overdose is much, much lower. And if someone does overdose, they can... Um, access ambulances super quick so less people die. It also reduces um, the number of needles hanging around on the street, the amount of petty crime in the area. Um, there's heaps of heaps of benefits for it. They've had one in Sydney for quite a while and um, it's been really successful there. They have them overseas as well and um, the city of Yarra have been trying to get one in Richmond for ages and uh, the coroner suggested that they, they, you know, they approved it. They thought it was a good idea, but then the health minister said no this week. Yeah, no, it's an interesting one. I remember the hoo-ha um, back when they, you know, about 20 years ago when they first wanted to open one up in Sydney. I think John Howard was in government. It got canned then on political reasons. It was initially coming in. There was a trial around it. And like so much of what happens in our drug policy, the decision was made around political imperatives mm. rather than evidence-based. And this is... This has like been the catch cry probably for the last five, ten years now. People in the industry saying, can we please have an evidence-based evidence based policy around drug and alcohol rather than a politically based policy around law and order and, you know, tabloid newspapers screaming out about stuff. The Sydney one, of course, eventually got up. And like you, um, Trainer Wills, my understanding is it's been really good. Mind you, I haven't actually seen trials. I've got some evidence here of the Sydney one. So it opened in 2001 on a trial basis. And then in 2010, they decided to stop the trial and have it as a permanent fixture in Sydney. And the evidence that's come out of that trial period has been pretty overwhelming, I think. So they managed over 6,000 drug overdoses without a single fatality because there's people supervising, you know, they're in the room there. If someone overdoses, they can ring an ambulance straight away and, and get treatment ASAP as opposed to people in the community where they might, you know, they'll be delayed. Um, they've reduced the number of publicly discarded needles and syringes in King's Cross by about half. They've decreased the number of ambulance calls in the first place by 80% in King's Cross. That's pretty remarkable, isn't That's it? That's phenomenal. Um, and generated more than 12,000 referrals to health and social welfare services, which is another great positive thing. You know, It, it gives people a, an avenue to... Yes to access treatment if they want it. And I think they're all fantastic things. I think the one thing that coming from a treatment angle where I come from mm. is that it gives people access to information and knowledge and awareness around what they can do, where they can go, who they can speak to if they want to go and seek treatment. And I think that's a, it's a really hidden secret in addiction. People think that if you see a drug user that they're in full control of their drug use mm. and they know what they're doing and, mm. you know, if they wanted to seek treatment, they would, but we just don't. Like, I was in complete denial for a long, long time and it took someone else to basically uh, put some consequences in place for me, for me to actually see what my behaviours was uh, were creating mm. and, and then I was able to do something about it. So mm. I think the awareness and, and the, I guess the treatment options, but again, no, I don't want to be knocking the government here, but, like, if you go to a, a safe injecting room and you're offered treatment, the only way you can get into, into treatment really quickly is is through a private service. And private services, and we've already seen there's been information, negative information around private services recently, um, are going to cost you money. Mm. You know, there's no public beds. Where are the pu- public beds? Where are the public rehabs where people can just walk in that day mm. and get some and get a detox and get treated straight away? And there's a window of opportunity for people who use drugs. If they if they say to you, I want to get treatment, you need to get them in now. Otherwise, next the next minute, they're going to say no and they late. won't be able to get in there. Mm. I think um, part of the opposition certainly... Obviously, the, the, um, 
politicians, as you say, Steve, there's a political imperative rather than being evidence-based, and clearly these injecting rooms um, have been shown, obviously, in New South Wales to do such a great job. But I think what I've read in, in the papers and some commentary is that, you know, that's great, but I don't want it in my backyard. Mm. And so I think politicians respond to that. I've got a question about why don't they make these injecting rooms near a hospital or part of a public hospital system? Why does it have to be in suburbia? If we're mm. talking about a a, a um, facility where people are going to be offered ongoing pathways to rehabilitate and be treated, why do we have to make it such a separate separate to a... You know, if we're talking about drug addiction being a biological... Do you know what I mean? I yeah, just don't know I why think we're the bottom line it. is you have to have the um, injecting room near where the injectors are, not near where the health services are, because people aren't going to jump in a, an Uber or a taxi to go and inject somewhere. Um, so mm. traditionally, my understanding, like the one in... Um, well, the one in Sydney's in King's Cross. Mm. It has to be in places... They have to be basically like pop-up shops in places where people inject. And the, the shopkeepers and residents in, in and around Richmond have been campaigning for this for ages. So the, the local people in the area are keen for they it because they're happen, seeing yeah. the yeah, crime happen and people getting sick on the street. There was an yeah. overdose in Hungry Jack's on yeah, Hoddle Street last year or something. You know, it's horrendous. Yeah, I just think it's such a no-brainer from all those it perspectives. Be, One, safe it? for the users. Two, bring them into contact with information. Three, centralise stuff the community. so that people aren't in lanes and exactly. back streets. You know, all of these things. And it must be financially... If you're chopping down ambulance pickups by 80% in King's Cross, you know, that's saving... That's got to be the equivalent of two or three workers full-time Surely. anyway. Surely. Mm. Oh, goodness. Hey, let's just touch quickly. Oh, in fact, before I do, let me just tell everyone who's here on the panel today. I must remember to keep doing this. You are listening to Radiotherapy. And yeah. in the studio is myself, Dr Doolittle, Dr Capri, Dr Trainer Wills, and our special guest, Gavin Krasiska, ex-footballer, now drug and alcohol counsellor, who we are going to be interviewing in depth in a few minutes before I don't laugh when I say in depth even though you should laugh because let's face it we're not we're not in depth it's not deep hey I just wanted to touch on something uh, else that I read that's actually along this line but not really along it isn't isn't medical marijuana I was reading in the paper during the week and I've been to a couple of meetings lately about um, what's happening and whatnot so I just want to give everyone a little bit of an update Um, so medical marijuana we're in the middle of a whole lot of a whole movement really that's been going on about a decade about trying to get medical marijuana into Australia to use in um, in evidence but in an evidence-based way in conditions where it's been shown to be where it's believed to be useful and where the research is currently going on like certain rare forms of epilepsy pain conditions um some people who are um in palliative care and have got an intractable nausea and spasms and things like that um so uh this movement's been going on for a while and as you all know we are getting it but the latest is um the government in victoria is going to loosen the importation rules so they made they changed the laws last year so that we can grow medical marijuana and i've heard on the grapevine so this is literally just grapevine, you know, corridor conversation meetings. Who are with, you um, talking, talking to, to Doolittle? Yes. <laughs> These are the sorts of conversations <laughs> I have in corridors. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, they're reliable vines. Look, the bottom line is we're already growing. We're not at the stage. We've got a fantastic setup. Like, just to give you some, you know, t- you know, some of the things around our setup. So, the marijuana's been grown. It can be split into all its constituent parts so you can get mixtures that have a certain amount of cannabidiol or whatever it's called and THC and this, that and the other. So, each bit can be researched. It can all be genetically fingerprinted so that if someone, you know, has got some illicit marijuana down the track and says, I got it off a of government's supplier it can be genetically you know basically fingerprinted to know exactly which batch and if that's true and all that so it's beautiful regulations beautiful setup it's all fantastic but as you can imagine with that degree of organization it's going to take a while till they Mm. get production levels up to the level that will be appropriate so in the meantime the government's relaxing supply Mm. so where would we get it from 
Well, that's the catch at the moment. Currently, the only way to... This is... So, you know, there's a whole lot of issues. And I say we, you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You talk to me afterwards. Yeah, where do you get it from? So, um, currently, you can get it from basically any doctor. But but because it's not approved by TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, whatever it is, you have to go through an individual process whereby you have to... Your doctor has to write, um, you know, essentially put up a case on your behalf and then an individual patient gets a licence and then you have to wait for the supply and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is um, this current move is to um, help the supply issue. The next big thing is to try and improve the processes um, whereby doctors can deliver it. Of course, the overall picture is to do all the research so that it's evidence based. Because currently, you know, look, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of leaving no stone unturned. You try everything. However, currently, the enthusiasm is outweighs the evidence by a yeah. factor of about 100. It's unsurprising, yeah, I suppose. Everyone's raving, oh, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. <laughs> uh, but let's face it, we don't, you know, the evidence is pretty soft so far, people. Don't go out there thinking it's a cure-all. You know, if you look up the evidence, you'll find it's pretty thin, yes. but it's promising and we want to do more research. Yeah, mm. Definitely. Any comments, gang? So do you agree with it, people? I do. I work in, yeah. um, I've worked in, for many years I worked in HIV and I saw a lot of people um, with HIV with chronic pain and various other um, problems associated with being on lots of medications and being sick. This was back in the day. HIV's a lot better yeah. treated now. But back in the day in the 90s, a lot of people got benefit from it. I've also had the personal experience of my mother when she had breast cancer. She got a lot of, she'd never taken a drug in her whole life. In her whole life. And she was, you know, she was a housewife out of, you know, of, um, you know, TV sitcoms. Um, and uh, that's why I'm so twisted. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, but she got benefit. I should, you know, I mean, she's passed away, so I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying. But she drank it in a tea and got relief. And, of course, I work in cancer now. And, uh, and a lot of people ask about it. And I want to be able to tell them this is what the evidence yes. says. Mm. And I want to be able to say this is how you use it. I don't want to be just saying, listen, you know, there's website. This is, currently I have to say, look, a lot of people benefit from it, but there's no evidence. You know, I think we need to You can't prescribe it like another medication. Yeah. So have they taken the addictive purposes? When you say they can genetically change change it and, and completely take it apart because I read somewhere and I'm, I'm not going to get the words right there was the in the old homegrown cannabis plants um, we didn't see anywhere near the amount of psychosis and mental health issues that that come from the from cannabis use now because of the hydroponics and obviously synthetic is different but the hydroponics as it's grown from the ground and into hydroponic situations, there's a chemical that's been basically removed out of the cannabis plant, which is causing the mental health issues and the psychosis with, with people. Hmm. Um, I wish I had more information for you because you guys, obviously, from your backgrounds, would know more than I do. But um, because of the hydroponic part of it, that's what we're seeing. And cannabis in the past used to be... It almost become normalised to say it's like having a beer, go and have a joint hmm. and so forth. But people are finding... We're finding in treatment services that people are coming to us with cannabis addictions that are just crazy and equal to an ice addiction in terms wow. of what it does to their brain yeah. and it's really really scary and I and sorry I, I sidetracked there but I really agree with it if it's going to help people in the in, in pain I think as soon as you talk about uh, medicinal cannabis all the addicts or all the all the dope smokers in the world go yes, yes this is going to be exactly, awesome yeah. but with the with the regulations and the licensing and so forth it's just not going to be possible for any Tom Dick and Harry to go and grab it true well you know you raise it's a really important point because you know, there's a couple of factors that drive addiction one is supply mm. the more something is available the more people that will get addicted now the big things that we have that are legal for currently are alcohol tobacco Gambling, And the more, the mm. less you regulate them, the higher your rates of addiction. Some things, though, you know, some things are obviously good and everything's good and bad. You know, that's why we allow alcohol, cigarettes and gambling to a degree. Um, 
Opiates are a good example. Opiates we regulate really tightly because the bad was outweighing the good back in the 60s. You know, too many people were getting addicted and so we regulate incredibly tightly. They're still our number one painkiller, still used throughout medicine, every hospital, every day, thousands and thousands of prescriptions, yet we regulate the illicit use. And we have to get that balance right with marijuana because I agree with you, Gavin, the risk is if we normalise it too much we will increase the addictive load. However, having said that, on the scales of... There's scales of addiction, how addictive something is as a substance. And so how do you compare the oxycodone, oxycontins to well, the typically the opioids... The scale goes from zero to three, and typically the opioids are right up the top. They're at about yeah. 2.8 in their addictive potential, and marijuana is way down below cigarettes. Cigarettes, yeah. I think, sits at about one. Marijuana sits at about... Point five. Wow. I haven't looked this up. Please go to the internet, people, because I'm uh, you know I'm doing this fact off the check, top of my head. Check. But mm. yeah, it's pretty much goes marijuana down there. Alcohol uh, is in between cigarettes. Cigarettes is at about one one point five. Um, the amphetamines and opiates and all that are above two, above two roughly. Anyway. But it's because more it's a gateway um, drug as yeah, well. I think that's more on. the that's issue rather than it being it. addictive yeah. in mm. itself. It's that it, it opens up that sort of. And, and I certainly and haven't met any any kid that's come into our service that hasn't started. Like there's just a mm. timeline of 12, 13, 14, 15 where it was cannabis. Yeah. And then it was alcohol or cannabis and alcohol and cigarettes, and then it moves to pills and powders and for a, for a certain group. Yeah. 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 And this yeah, is why we highlight hardcore group. Yeah. And this is why we highlight. You know, we want the evidence. That's the problem is getting the evidence. And the evidence ties into two things. No one puts any money into this set. Not an, enough money. Nothing. Anyway, we'll get on to that after. Mm. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. And our special guest is Gavin Krasiska, who, as I mentioned at the top, is a former Collingwood AFL football legend and grand final winner. But he also developed an addiction to cannabis, amphetamines and alcohol that he overcame over several years and is now a qualified addiction counsellor and a director of Sober Living Housing. Gavin, thanks again for coming in. Thank you. I've, um, <clears throat> we've met before and we've talked about this at public events before. Why don't you t- tell us about your pathway that led, us, led you to this point? Um, in a snapshot, um, I started using cannabis as a young kid and with a group of older teammates and uh, basically set my addiction off pretty much straight away and I smoked dope every day for the next 28 years. Um, I believe in the genetics of addiction. I, my dad was a hopeless alcoholic and, um, and he was uh, non-present in my life for a long period of time. But I just felt like a uh, really restless, irritable, discontent kid and uh, for me taking drugs and drinking was that solution to calm all this internal uncomfortability and discomfort that I was actually in Um, and the one thing that I guess uh, saved me early days was I had an ability to play footy and I moved down from Queensland to play with Collingwood and and couldn't actually stop the behaviours or the drug use that I was doing Uh, but my footy uh, career was able to contain it to a certain degree and uh, alcohol became a part of my life as well obviously and um, yeah and then I experienced amphetamines throughout my career at certain stages had a few little rock bottoms that I was about to hit but was able to uh, pull myself out of at that stage Uh, and then on retirement uh, and this uh, it's a bit of a key topic um, of recent times with a few people with what's going on in the world with mental health but um, you know I went into coaching so I had um, you talk about loss of identity and so forth and I yep. think that's a bit of a key part with professional athletes and and they talk about the rush we have when we play and I sort of go with that as well but it's more that identity we lost 
or we lose, sorry. Um, but for me, I was going into coaching, so it wasn't really um, really relevant for me, but it was a green light for me to get onto my drug of choice, which was amphetamines. And uh, again, it wasn't a weekend party thing. It was a daily thing, and it was me medicating my internal states just so that I could get through the day. And you know, I worked with um, with the Kangaroos, Hawthorne and Carlton, and coached North Barrett for a couple of years myself, so I was highly functioning yeah. to a degree. Because mm. um, that's but, one of the things that really surprises me. Did your use of drugs impact on your career, do you reckon? Well, I'm sure it did. You know, I smoked ciggies as well up until, you know, four years ago. So I'm, I'm sure my fitness levels could have gone to another level, albeit I, and I heard Ben Cousins talk about the reward that he used to give himself and I used to train as hard as I could so that I could actually have that reward or my personal reward that no one knew about mm. um, and not be really guilty and shameful about mm. it or to a degree. So I'd, I'd work my backside off uh, with footy and then I'd go and take it easy at home. But then in 2011, I was running a pub for my brother-in-law and um, the behaviours were getting seen. My secret was starting to um, to come come out, and uh, my wife booted me out of home, and I just sort of walked. I didn't. I thought she was starting to get in the way of what I needed to do to survive each day, and um, thankfully she performed an unstructured type intervention and and got me into a private hospital where I started my rehab, and it was um, you know it was where all the the lights started turning on. I, didn't, I thought I was just alone. I didn't think anyone else suffered the way I mm. suffered, thought the way I thought, used drugs the way I did. Uh, I was too embarrassed and ashamed to admit it to anyone that what I was doing uh, was how I lived. So, um, but I found a whole group of people that um, behaved that way in in treatment rehab surprise surprise and uh, did a month in the hospital and three months in a residential rehab like the one I'm running now um, and really learned about myself and just went on this path of self-discovery and and change um, and I've been changing for the last six years basically and my wife thank God stayed with me and our relationship's gone to another level now obviously in terms of um, how we connect and our intimacy and I guess me being in the relationship um, and uh, yeah I've sort of moved forward and continue on with my recovery as we speak. Great. Wow, good on you, Gavin, and good on you for speaking so openly about it too. That's really brave and I think it's important to hear those stories. Look, I think that that was a part of it with, with my profile. Eddie grabbed me straight away and, and he, he said about going public with it because it was this big secret about what was going on. People mm. think I had cancer and so forth and um, and that was a, that's a part of what I want to do is to share the message to say that you can be really buggered and mm. stuffed on, you know, and, and highly addicted to drugs but there is hope and there is a way out if you can actually just get yourself into a position where you can experience the help. And I mean... I don't know if I want to say normalising it, but sort of destigmatising it a bit is really important too, so people are more willing to open up about these problems too. Yeah, because the shame and guilt that that we have and that I experience with people that come into treatment is just, that's the the core issue that keeps people out of treatment Mm. is actually only up to the fact that this is what I do um, and it's really shameful for for, for most people. Mm. What about that sense that it's impossible to change at the time, yet after when you look back, you know, how do you reconcile that? Because at the time, of course, you know, all those years, it must have felt like there was no, absolutely no other alternative. Mm. Whereas now you've seen this whole new world. Well, denial is another key part of it, and, and I knew what I was doing when I was when I finished footy. I knew the behaviours were were not right, but I quickly flicked that in the back of my mind and thought, no, well, this is what I need to do, so this is what I'm going to do. Um, and then you come into treatment, and look, it's it's not an instant, it's not a quick fix. It's a it's a process, and it's a, a lifelong 
change that I'm involved in because I can slip back pretty quickly into obsessive compulsive behaviours and thinking um, and thankfully now you know coming up to six years I've, I've got the tools in the tool bag as they say where these tri- well, I haven't really been triggered for a long time but you know if we get triggered we can actually we've got the capabilities of being able to drag ourselves out of it mm. uh, and that's why you find addiction treatment is a, re- a reoccurring door of, of similar faces and a relapsing condition because unless you get them in a long term rehab and we have our best results from people staying you know six to 12 months yep. it's not a one month or three month gig yeah, the longer you can exactly. stay in treatment uh, the more chance you've got of, of sustaining that change and it's that chain in the brain a change in the brain the the neural pathways of our brain you know we need to change those so it takes time before we can actually get to the stage where you know this is actually things are getting a little bit better for me as you say there's that constant vigilance and you know sort of keeping yourself on task so you don't slip back yeah um now you mentioned the word interventions and that your wife did a sort of a, a mini, mini intervention. One. Can you just explain what that is and, and what sort of happens yeah. and, and how that helped you? Yep, so the mini intervention my wife used uh, was basically got uh, t- told a lie to me and told me we were going to the school to, to see the kids because I was out of home at that stage and basically locked the doors and drove me to this place. Mm-hmm. So that was her intervening, which was... I was so buggered then, uh, just it was more or less I couldn't continue living the way I was living but I didn't know how I was going to live any other way so mm. I was basically at the mercy of whoever had me at that stage so that was that intervention but a, a, but a, a structured family intervention is, is a lot different. We, we get families in um, and basically get the stories of their loved one and how the loved one's impacted them and so forth and we will choose the correct people and there's normally about five people in a family or with friends and so forth that will have impact and leverage over someone in denial and intervention's basically about helping you get into treatment even though you don't think treatment's the right option for you and it's everyone else's fault. So it's a really loving process where we get the family together. We train the family to do it. We're not, Belinda and myself, my business partner aren't there. Mm. So it's different than the American model. The American model, you'll see the counsellor or the interventionist come in and he'll direct the ship. But we find that if we don't teach the families to be able to to change their language and change their Mm. communication with the loved one, Mm. like you get them into treatment and so forth, and as soon as they leave treatment, they go back to the sick family and the family's going to be the same. And they don't have the strategies. To so can you so take us through it step by step? So I'm, I'm a family member. I'm concerned about someone who's um, in my family who I love who's got an addiction. Yep. So I ring Sober Living Housing yep. and then I come and meet with you guys. And yep. what happens? We, we'll get a fair... We, it can be five to ten people in that first session. Yep. We'll just get everyone's story and, and we'll try and work out the picture of what's happening. We'll find the strong ones. So there's generally roles that people play in the family system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mum may be the enabler. Dad may be the really hard one. They're, you know, they'll be a scapegoat for sure, which is normally the addict and we just manoeuvre and work out what's going on in the family. And yep. it's basically, and it sounds really, really simple, and you'd be thinking, what the hell? It's about a loving letter. Um, so we will actually have that first session with them. We'll get them to agree to it and so forth. Then we'll send them all the information in terms of how to write this letter. And it's basically about this connection because us in a- active addiction, we're completely alone. It doesn't matter how close we are to you. We're on our own and you don't understand us. Yeah. So the loving letter is basically it's a... Um, for the five people that are involved in it, it'll take 10 minutes at the most. We'll structure it so dad reads first, then it'll cross to mum, then goes to sister, then goes to best friend, and there's no pauses, there's nothing in it whatsoever. So they don't so actually send the letter, it's live. They essentially read set, the letter to the person. We set it up, we yep. have the treatment ser- service ready to go once they say yes. Yep. The letter, letter uh, writing process is basically about you connecting with your sibling or your loved one again, mm-hmm. um, because they're, as I said, they're completely disconnected from the mm-hmm. family most times, and then three factual events 
that how your your addiction has impacted has, right. me. Right. Um, yeah, and it it's real. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you just you draw them in to start with, and you get their heart to start with mm. with that first loving connection, and then you let them know exactly what's happening. Because again, I didn't know what I was doing to my wife. No. I, exactly. I just I was just doing it to myself, and you were just on the outskirts. You yeah, know, we're so we're so yeah. irrational. It's brain damage. We're mm. brain damage when we're in active addiction. How so. hard is it to get the addict to? go to one of these well it's normally a setup so it's oh, tricky so you trick them into coming no, not not normally it'll be just be you know can you come over and you know mum and dad are having dinner lunch. yeah mm. we're just going to have lunch right. or something okay. yeah, it, yeah. It, look it's a lot of work from our point in the in the back of it to to get it all set up and it's such a nerve-wracking thing mm. it's a like talk about anxiety provoking but you know we've had blinders done over 600 interventions i've mm. been involved with probably nearly 100 now and and I, for me i've had three people that have said no and blinders had about four she's had the oh, three wow. with me and then wow. one with yeah. her so but it's not an event like people think that go to the intervention and billy says no oh okay well that's it well no it's not yep. because then we'll get the family back again okay. and we'll we'll have a a, basically a bottom line type session where we'll say okay well if Billy he's now not accepting it we'll have one more session with Billy but what are the consequences and what are you going to put in place as family members yep. to say okay if you don't accept treatment this time this is what I'm going to do mm. and we need to then work with the family so that they then now go into a protective mode of themselves so if you don't accept treatment I'm not going to keep giving I'm not going to keep paying your phone bill or yep. you can't live mm, under my okay. roof yeah. whatever the boundaries and the consequences you guys put in place need to be stuck by and then we have a, that other session where those letters are read and again it's from love it's not accusing them and saying you bastard you've got to do this yeah, and do that yeah. it's mm. from love and saying we can't Christ. we can't watch you die anymore so and I get all passionate about it myself yeah. um, you know we're going to do this but if, if you don't this is how we're going to behave going forward. It's great I just love this. Support. I just yeah. love this yeah. whole concept so much. I mean, Fantastic. I've been watching this on US TV for years. You know, yeah. they do, you know, my understanding. I don't know where I've got this figure from. I might have heard it. You say it, Gavin, but um, around about a quarter to a third of people enter drug and alcohol services in the US via an intervention. No, that's no, wrong. What is it? Eighty percent. Eighty. Whoa. Mm. Yeah, for, so, for people yeah. in first time treatment in right. the states, they say oh, it's eighty percent. Yeah. And in Australia, what? well, in Australia, it's not, not even close. I don't even know anyone else besides yeah, I get, I, oh, wow. you know, I would get. I don't know, one or two people a week who have got an addiction who have to help, even though I work in general hospitals, at least one or two come along. And I try and talk to them, but there's no... You know, getting... I didn't know until I... Um, first heard about this last year. I didn't know that there were services where you could get the help with the intervention. I would yeah. try and explain it to people from my inexperienced, you know, explaining it once a week, once a fortnight. You know, this this is why I'm so impressed with this and all oh, the other stuff that goes around it because it's not just the intervention. It's You've got to, you know, I always say to my family, the families who come along, I say you've got to become an expert in drug and alcohol. Yeah, um, you know, because our services, let's face it, they're shit. You know, you break an so arm, funny. you'll be, you know, if I fall over right now and bust my arm, I'll be getting it treated within around about three hours, um, no matter where I fall over in Victoria. And that arm, broken arm, is going to have a minor impact on my life. I get a drug and alcohol problem, and if I pick up the phone or go into a hospital right now and say... I need to change, I want to do something about this, it's probably around about two to three months before I can get into help, by which time anything can go wrong. Um, The only people who are getting semi-quick help at the moment are rich people, and it's just not good enough. And we've, anyway, just as you can see, it gets us all fired up. Tell us about Sober Living Housing. Let's, we better find out about that. Yeah, so once someone goes into treatment, And the website, what's the website so they can get Yeah, so soberlivinghousing.com.au is our our residential service. Alcohol and drug help is the intervention part of our business, so that's a completely separate part, but Sober Living is 
is, um, yeah, look, we have we have four houses where we support and provide uh, accommodation and addiction treatment for for people that are starting from. Look, we don't necessarily take people to detox. We've found that that um, creates a bit too much pressure on other people in the house. So we'll normally get referrals from a Malvern Private or or another service where they've done a twenty eight day detox basically, and then come to us and. Belinda and I believe in it's not just that detox and it's not just the three months of going to Bali and getting locked away in an addiction yeah. treatment service. Mm. It's actually about doing the addiction treatment but then actually going, okay, well, what am I going to do? We have case managers and life life skills coaches that say, okay, well, let's help you with your resume or what do you want to do with work? We have art therapy, just different things to actually get them in, in into life and our program is basically in the mornings. So in the afternoons, their, their schedule is dictated by a daily plan which we keep them accountable too so they're now actually in the real world they're not just locked away behind closed doors and you know we find a few of the guys from uh, that come from Bali where they've been in for three months or six months over there and then they come back here and there's no aftercare plan there's they don't know what to do they're not connected with anyone here whereas I think services like us and that sober living component can actually get them connected so that they can just move slowly into life again whether it's work Mm. or study or whatever so we have stages in our houses as well so our third stage house is for people normally that are stable in their recovery six months plus where they're actually doing the drill and don't need that um, supervision from us and they're working or studying or, or getting back into life. Hey, very much appreciate you coming in this morning and telling us all about that. If you don't have to rush off, feel free to stick around whilst we chat about other things. But um, Gavin Krasiska, ex-Collingwood footballer, now um, addiction uh, counsellor and one of the directors at Sober Living Housing, which you heard was soberlivinghousing.com.au. Yep. Um, look it up. All about interventions and other support for people with addiction. Triple R, not for everyone. For anyone. Um, I also want to remind everyone about our Facebook page, Radio Therapy on Triple R. Um, jump on board, have a look, see what's coming up, make comments, tell us we're idiots, look at our pictures, read our articles, do whatever you like, people. Um, you are listening to um, Dr. Capri, our trusty GP, Dr. Trainer Wills, our ever trusty medical student, myself, Dr. Doolittle, our completely untrustworthy Never psychiatrist, who trust. <laughs> no one trusts. <laughs> and we've got our special guest in the studio, Gavin Krasiska, who's been talking about addictions. But right now, we wanted to pop across to you, Dr. Capri. You've got some stuff. I love this stuff. You're going to talk a little bit about how to question doctors and when to do it. Yeah, and actually, I'm not going to confine it just to doctors. I think any health, any person who's pr- providing health uh, advice or treatment um, or procedures should be questioned by patients. Um, I think my focus this year on Triple R is going to be about how we get better health outcomes for individuals in the community. That's going to be my theme this year. But I thought I'd start with why we should question our doctors. And I was I was inspired by the program, the Four, uh, Four Corners program on Swallow It, which was talking about complementary and alternative medicines and how, you know, at any one time 70% of the community are using them uh, when they don't necessarily have any evidence for... Um, being useful and sometimes they cause harm and it sort of struck me as why is it that so many people use things just with blind faith or not questioning whether they work or not whether they cause harm and I just thought that you know really obviously patients find it hard to question people when they're offered a treatment or offered a test or offered a a procedure but I think it's really important to have patients empowered to do that because it actually improves their health and the kind of um Um, outcomes they have if they're really engaged so um, 
why should other reasons you should question your doctor is because it's there's not so one well, size. Can I just hold you up? So you're saying because what I'm taking, you're not just saying question your complementary and alternative. You're saying question all your treatments. Anybody who I would question anyone. I recommend questioning anyone who provides you with some advice about your health. I'm glad you said that because you know I think that's too often people take the approach of I'm either in the alternative camp and I believe in this stuff, or I'm in the medical camp and I believe in that stuff. And it should be irrelevant what camp exactly. you live in. It should be what's this treatment? What's the evidence for it? Do I? Does it suit my philosophy? Do I believe? It and then you go forth. So you should be. So that's why I like it because own backyard doctors exactly. need to explain themselves exactly. just as much as everyone yeah. else. And, and a lot of doctors would feel very challenged by this. And I'm sure uh, I've got the little um, sheet on my wall uh, the questions that patients should ask your doctor if they're offered any tests. And I'm going to suggest we put it in the waiting room. And I'm sure that's going to be challenged at the next doctors' meeting because mm. I think a lot of doctors would feel um, a bit. Well, whether it's because they're time poor, whether it's because they don't think they can sort of present the full picture or whether they don't think they should be explaining themselves, you know, there's all sorts of reasons. But I think some doctors might find it challenging, but it doesn't mean patients shouldn't ask because there's not a one-size-fits-all as far as therapies or treatments or procedures either. So that's another reason why I think patients should really ask questions because there are sometimes times where you don't you should do nothing. It's actually reasonable not to accept the treatment, not to have the procedure. And I don't think a lot of patients realise that and question, you know, um, whether this is right for me. And unless they ask the questions, doctors don't really know that they're interested in, in an option. I think that's so important because so much of the time a patient is the person who understands their health more than anybody else, right? But they they don't they don't get the opportunity to take charge of their health. Exactly. I've come across patients in the last few weeks in hospital who've just had a gallbladder removed and they don't know why. Exactly. I'm, I'm actually not sure why they took that out. Yeah, they yeah they did that the other day. I don't know why. And they don't realize. It's quite bizarre, right? They often don't realize that with any given symptom or diagnosis or problem, there's five or six um, alternatives. There's different treatments you can go down. And a lot of the time, the doctors are just making the treatment that suits what they believe suits the patient Mm. because they're in a... Whatever, time pool, whatever, whatever. I don't think they're doing it out of... I think we're going to explore that later. But anyway, what are the questions they should be asking? Okay, so um, uh, there's a a Choose Wisely campaign which was introduced a couple of years ago which um, has a a lot of different arms to it. But um, it's it's basically trying to encourage and and, um, empower patients to ask the questions Um, and the questions are do I really need this test or procedure? Again, you know, as Steve, sorry, as Doodle was just saying, um, you know, there there are usually different options and we had um, Dave Blakey on recently talking about prostate cancer treatments and there isn't a one-size-fits-all. There are all different options and patients need to be aware. So asking that question, what are the risks and side effects, Mm. Um, which is really important because often that will not only help with people going along with the the treatment if they know what the side effects are, but maybe I think we actually... I don't really want to go down that path. I'd rather sit with what I've got than perhaps invite something that's a little bit worse. Are there simpler and safer alternatives? Um, Obviously, that's self-explanatory. And what happens... I like this one the best. What happens if I do nothing? You know, that option of doing nothing, which is another thing I want to talk about later in the year, is that sometimes that actually is the best option. Just sit with it, see how you you go with it. You know, um, we'll review it, we'll revise things. You know, you don't necessarily have to do any of this. You can just sit with it and um, and we can just come back to it at another time. And then obviously, what are the costs, which is not only beneficial for the individual, but obviously for the uh, health dollar. And that's a question that, you know, patients should be asking, but obviously doctors should be too. And I have a final one that I'm going to add is, do you have any 
anything more, any information or somewhere I can go to get more information about this? Um, or doctors should be actually giving patients something written or a website to go to or some sort of val- you know, valid information to go to so they can go back, go over it and then come back and ask more questions. So I think I'm, you know, I'm encouraging patients to certainly... I, I always my, One of my last um, statements to co- patients is also, always, do you have any other questions for me? Opening that opportunity for them to ask more questions because I think that's part of making patients more health literate and they get better outcomes. What do you reckon, Gavin? As, yeah, you, as no, you know, from the other side of the fence. Yeah, no, all I'm thinking is that I, um, I, the doctor I go to, I trust, so I, I don't ask questions because I just trust, I just do what they say. And, I, and the first thing I, I thought of when you were talking about that was James Heard and their mob at Essen, as in if those boys had have asked questions, mm, yes. um, things may have been a little bit different. So what you, yeah, it's... Sounds quite um You know what, though? If you've got a doctor you trust, often you don't need to ask a lot of these questions. I agree. And part of the doctor's job is to figure out how much you want to know. You know, so I often say, you know, how much, especially, you know, with the sorts of cancer and stuff like that, how much do you want to know? And patients will tell you, you know, they'll tell you, and then you can sort of go up to that Mm. limit. But I guess this is particularly important if you don't know the doctor. Like seeing specialists, you don't know the specialist, and you should go in with the list. But I was giggling to myself because, you know, you, um, uh, Capri, say, you know, you end with, is there anything more you want to know? I know some specialists who have tricks to make sure the patient doesn't talk so they can get them in and out quickly. Like one tells me how, you know, he literally, as he finishes talking, he or she, I don't want to identify, (laughs) he or she um, stands up and reaches out the hands and walks to the door as they're finishing saying stuff because they haven't got time for questions. It's terrible. It's terrible. Your profession, um, that's horrible. Our profession has a lot of of crap in it. Absolutely. Hey, um... We're rushing a little bit, Capri. That was fantastic. <laughs> but I'm now thinking of a great segue because I also we also wanted to get an update from uh, Trainer Wheels because we've sort of followed your medical progress. Um, from you joined this show when you were a first year medical student, didn't you? Or yes. was it before that? No, first year medical I student. I asked yes. you though when you before you were a medical student. I remember I met you when you were going just into before medicine I started and yeah. said, "Oh, fantastic! Let's get someone who's starting at the very beginning." So, can you give us an update? Uh, you know, can it's a new year? I wanted an update. Sure. Yeah. So this year we've started our clinical years, which th- that means we're in hospital full time. So what year um, are you? Second year. Right. Um, so we still get lectures and have classes and things, but they're all we're based at the hospital the whole time, and we're encouraged to go and spend as much time with patients as we possibly can. Um, and it's it's fantastic. Last year was so theory-based and a lot of it seemed r- irrelevant. I mean, I'm learning more and more that a lot of it was relevant. But anyway, <laughs> it, felt, it felt really irrelevant. I mean, for God's sake, that's such an arrogant organ. Always pushing itself. I'm going to be asking you lots of questions yeah. if you're my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it's, it's really, it's been excellent to talk to real patients and see real doctors working as well um but as you can imagine it's very overwhelming too um just something that's really interesting is kind of just looking at how all the interpersonal stuff works how doctors interact with each other and even if you're watching a consultation happen that's pretty boring like there's nothing much interesting happening there's always something to learn because you see how the doctor's interacting with the patient and stuff like that so it's all it's 
it's great. Um, but something that I'm finding hard at the moment is it's sort of a bit of an emotional roller coaster every day. You know, mm. you go in first thing in the morning for a ward round and you've got this intimidating consultant that kind of waltzes in. <laughs> Firstly, the registrar's just ignoring you because they're so busy they don't yeah. have time to yeah. even look at you. And then the consultant kind of waltzes in with their bow tie and whatever and they sort of, they fix, you know, they catch your eye and they ask you this question and it's like you have no choice but to answer it but it's just the most absurd question that no one would ever realistically know the answer to um but then they ask you another question and you get it right and you think oh i'm so cool i'm so smart this is great i've never had that experience <laughs> skipped a fourth you get the next five wrong um and that feels like shit and then you so then you sort of spent the first few hours doing that and you're exhausted and then you go to an outpatient clinic or something and you see you know four or five patients with different problems and one of them says their day's been made because they're chronic disease hasn't progressed and you know i almost cry mm. because it's such a beautiful moment and then the next patient comes in and the doctor says oh they probably haven't got very long to go so then you nearly cry because that's mm. so sad and then you're on the wards and uh, a patient's really very sick an elderly patient really unwell and their partner comes in just to hold their hand and be with yeah. them and you nearly start crying so you've got to leave the room i just want to say that during the week we had someone talk to us uh um, about MD2s, which is sepsis, mm. and they're, they're the most problematic. That's, about, that's the year where people have struggled the most, mm. and there is a service available at Melbourne Uni. Oh, that's I hope good you're to know. Two psychologists, and MD2s are the, the most um, common year level to, to use that service. Well, what I wanted to know is how does this stuff change over your career? You know, for me at the moment, it's all it's up and down, and it's these highs and lows that are sort of. I, I don't think I can maintain this kind of emotional exhaustion. But it, it, you know what? It doesn't change. No. It doesn't change. No. I still, I saw a patient about three weeks ago and I cried during the consultation, you know, yeah. because it was just so sad. Yeah. There was just no two ways about it. It was sad. And I started, and she was crying and I started crying. And you, so it doesn't change. That's actually, um, it's no, nice to know that you're you allowed to. to be human. You've got to stay human. Yeah. Yeah. But you get, Otherwise you shouldn't be doing it. You get it. better at dealing with it and you get better at not feeling shit about the fact that you cried because it's no big deal. Mm. Um, hey, uh, we're going to wind up. Um, Gavin, Krasiska, thanks so much for coming in and talking about your work at Sober Living Housing. Thank Dr. you for having me. Pre, thank you so much again. No um, Trainer Wheels, can we go back to that topic? Because we rush through it. Let's do it next time first up so that we're not in a hurry. Let's not forget Marinara's birthday next week, their 20th anniversary live broadcast down at Rye at Bahas. Everyone come down. All the radiotherapy fans come down too. Our next next up at 11 o'clock, which is in five seconds, is Einstein and Gogo, our favourite scientists in the Southern and Northern Hemisphere. Over you guys. Ciao. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.